Well, hello, everybody. Happy whatever it is when you're listening to this to you. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this is The Past and the Curious. Maybe it's December when you're listening to this. Maybe it's November. Maybe it's January. Maybe it's 2028. I don't know. Hello in the future. Anyway, I get a lot of emails, and a lot of people suggest many different things to consider for an episode. But I have to say, the number one thing that I, I have gotten requests for has been video game history. And I like video games. Like, I had a Nintendo and NES when I was a kid. I've had a few other game consoles through the years, but it's not how I spend my time. I, 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 it, it's never really been my thing. I think it's cool, but it's never really been my thing. But luckily, there are some really awesome stories, particularly of the people behind the devices that you use and enjoy. Actually, the first story is a man named Ralph Baer. He escaped Nazi Germany and became a pioneer in video games. And just a few years later, a black engineer named Jerry Lawson took some of those ideas and really expanded upon them. And we have those two guys to thank for an awful lot. One summer day in 1966, Ralph Bayer couldn't get an idea out of his head. It wasn't a new idea. He had thought about it years before, but no one thought much of it when he suggested it, so he had moved on to other things. But now, while he waited for someone he knew at a busy bus station in New York City, he sketched out a more complete version of this idea. There was something there, his boss would decide. Soon, Ralph had the official thumbs up he needed to invent the very first home video game console. Ralph Bayer was born into a Jewish family in Germany in 1922. With the rise of the Nazi party during his youth, this was an increasingly dangerous time and place for Jewish families. Adolf Hitler came to power in 1933, and soon the rights of Germany's Jewish people were all but destroyed. The Nuremberg Laws of 1935 limited the freedom of Jewish people throughout Germany, and they lost nearly all political power. These laws also meant Ralph and his fellow young Jewish students could no longer continue their educations. They were expelled from school. His parents, Lottie and Leo, could see the rise of hate and danger that surrounded their family and decided to flee before it was too late. Lottie's family had arrived in America back in 1895. Leo's job had brought a bit of money, and importantly, he could speak English. At the time, America had strict, often unfair rules about who could be issued a visa to stay in America. Despite thousands of people being desperate to flee Europe, the American government refused more people than it accepted during this time. Some years, many of the allotted passes went unused, but the Bears were fortunate, and their already-in-America family, savings, and fluency helped them get to New York and safety. Two months after they arrived, the event known as Kristallnacht happened in their homeland. This state-sanctioned rioting destroyed Jewish businesses, burned homes, and took many of the first lives in what became known as the Holocaust. Fortunately, by that time, the recently arrived 16-year-old Ralph was already hard at work in New York City. One day, after 10 hours of stitching leather in a factory, he glanced at an ad in a magazine someone on the subway was reading. It was for a correspondence course to learn radio repair, basically pay to learn by mail. 
He paid the fee and completed the coursework, which arrived regularly in his mailbox. And before long, he was working as a radio technician. In 1943, he was drafted to serve in the United States Army. Ralph was more than willing to return to Europe and help stamp out the Nazi forces. His gift and interests in technology and native German tongue made him a great choice for military intelligence, and he actually worked under general and future president Dwight Eisenhower. Around the time after World War II, there were probably only a few thousand television sets in America. Before the war, a Chicago man named Ulysses Armand Sanabria, the son of a Puerto Rican immigrant, launched one of the first television stations in the world. He had a dream for America, and at the war's end, he recruited 2,000 returning soldiers to train at his new American Television Institute of Technology. The lack of TVs in homes didn't faze him. It's the wave of the future, I can picture it now, a TV in every home. He knew that the world would need lots of expert technicians, and Ralph Baer would be one of those 2,000 soldiers trained to take care of the 2,000 or so TVs in America. A one-to-one ratio isn't a great business model, but luckily for him, by the time Ralph graduated, Ulysses' vision was well on its way to coming true. TVs became the center of many family living rooms. As Ralph repaired machine after machine, he had a lot of time to think. It occurred to him. TVs are incredible, like maybe the most technologically advanced thing ever up to this point. But they only do one thing broadcast images someone else has sent. What if people could control what was happening on the TV? What if you could play games? In the 1950s, he was working for an electronics company and suggested it as a new approach to business. What? Nobody likes games. People want the news and commentators giving opinions. Maybe an interview with an opera star here and there for fun, but games? Grow up, Ralph. So, Ralph filed the unappreciated genius idea in the back of his mind until he pitched it to a new company a decade later in 1966. By this time, there were millions of television sets in America alone. I love it. Here's two smart teammates to help you and $2,500. Come back to me when you figure it out and we can have some fun playing, uh, pixelated television challenges? Medium-fast broadcast contests? Maybe just video games? What? Come on, Ralph. Just make the machine. With his team of two other scientists, they worked in a secret room with circuit boards, television sets, buttons, wires, and a whole lot of creativity. In May of 1967, when Ralph and his fellow game designer William Harrison first plugged in their new invention to play the game they programmed from Ralph's ideas, Ralph lost. It wasn't much of a game, though. They couldn't do much more than move a dot on a screen, so they had to get creative. A see-through plastic sheet was placed over the television screen on which the image of a bucket was printed. The game console, originally called Channel LP or Channel Let's Play, placed a blue dot on the screen so it oriented towards the bottom of the bucket that was stuck to the television screen. Player A had a controller with a button as did player B. And when the game started, player A tried to fill up the bucket by moving the dot upwards to the top. Player B tried to stop it by pushing the water back down. 
This was simply controlled by which player pressed the single button the fastest and the most. There was a time limit, so if player A was able to outsmash player B and spill the blue dot over the bucket's edge before the clock stopped, it was a victory for team spill. If player B had the fastest fingers and the imaginary floor stayed dry, it was a win for team put a lid on it. Um, cool, cool, yeah. Can you come up with some other video game ideas? Maybe ones that are more exciting than spilling water on the floor? Bayer's team came up with a bunch, all of which used see-through plastic sheets that stuck to the TV and the same dots. There was a racing game, a baseball game, a geography game, a shooting game, and more. But when they came up with three moving images and created a ping-pong-like game, fate was sealed. Video games are awesome. Still, they had to make eight different prototypes to get things right. Making awesome stuff takes trials and errors. When they finally nailed down the design, they went with the lawyer to the patent office to get a patent. Ralph spent about 15 minutes explaining it and then handed the controllers to the patent officers. They played a few games, and then they played a few more, and a few other people in the building heard about it and had to see for themselves. Well, it's been like 30 minutes now. What do you think? Uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure yet. I think we're going to need to play a few more rounds to get the whole picture. But you've played every game. Yeah, but I'm, I want to play them again. And my coworker just walked in. She needs to play this too. And me, I want to play. These patent officials were the first to learn an important lesson. It's way more fun to play video games than to watch someone play video games. But their excitement was a good sign for old Ralph. The games were fun. With patents secured, the company Magnavox agreed to sell the device. It would be the very first home video game console on the market. Perhaps named in honor of the amazing journey Ralph Bayer had made to get to this point in his life, it was called the Odyssey. Whatever the case, it was a snappier name than what Ralph originally called it, the Brown Box. The Odyssey connected to the TV through the antenna connectors and actually contained all of the programming for the various games in the game console itself. In Ralph's original version, there were a bunch of switches on the front of the box, and depending on how you had them arranged, it would let you play one of the many different games it contained. Of course, you'd need to stick the plastic overlay on the TV screen if you wanted the full experience of playing baseball, or car racing, or geography search, or don't spill the water? By our standards of today, it may have lacked excitement and variety. It was really just a few moving dots. But it was a huge leap Ralph made to get a home video game system in the homes of Americans. Finally, people would use their TVs for more than just watching stuff. The switches on the front were expensive, and Magnavox was trying to keep costs down. So to save money, the final version dumped the switches and instead came with cards for each game that you inserted into the machine. While inserted, they configured the internal circuitry to trigger the game you wanted. But it should be pointed out that the cards contained no information. They were not game cartridges. That came later, as you will find out soon. In 1972, the Magnavox Odyssey was released in America for $100 which would be over $600 today. This was four times more expensive than what they had originally hoped for, but new technology is usually expensive. Despite the hefty price tag, they sold over 70,000 units in the first year. 
More importantly, it paved the way for video game consoles in homes all over the world, first with Atari, then with Nintendo, Sega, PlayStation, and onward. The Odyssey was only in production until 1975, but Ralph kept on creating. In 1978, at a place called Studio 54 in New York City, a new game debuted that he and a friend invented. The four-color, four-button memory game was called Simon, and it is still a popular memory skill-based toy to this day. It may have been his most enduring legacy from a standpoint of something that you can still buy, but the vision and creativity conjured up by this man who once fled the Nazis founded the multi-billion dollar video game industry of today. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Calling all kids in the car. Brittany and Meredith here from the Chart Topping Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. Are you dreading another silent car ride with the fam? We've got the cure. Three rounds of fresh trivia every single week. Movies, music, even science and Disney. We've got something for every trivia buff in the car. No more crickets chirping on those long journeys. The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast is your secret weapon for connecting and laughing with kids of all ages, teens, toddlers, adults, it doesn't matter. Spark their curiosity and challenge their brains with every episode. New episodes drop weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast and turn those car rides into epic adventures. For You Have 30 Seconds this month, we have Xavier Cooper from Rwanda, but he is Liberian and he's going to tell you about Liberia. Hi, I'm Xavier. Liberia was founded by freed slaves from the United States of America. It's the oldest republic in Africa and home to many famous people like Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the first elected female president in Africa and winner of the 2011 Nobel Peace Prize with another Liberian, Lema Bowie, a peace activist and woman's right advocate and current Liberian president, George Weah, the first non-European and only African to win the Ballon d'Or. Xavier, thank you so much. If you, like nine-year-old Xavier, have a You Have 30 Seconds that you would like to share, then by all means, please send it in. It's been so great to hear these. Xavier, that was fantastic. I really, really appreciate you sending that, and I know everyone enjoyed listening to it. So thank you very much. Let's keep moving. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. That's right. It's quiz time once again. Believe it or not, famous video game company Nintendo was founded all the way back in 1889. What? Yes. Nearly 100 years before the NES came to market. 
Obviously, they were not selling video games at the time. So, what did Nintendo originally sell? Fusajiro Yamauchi founded the company, and they first found success making and selling playing cards. They expanded into the toy market in the 1950s, and that eventually led to them revolutionizing the video game industry. Actually, the Nintendo company still sells playing cards on their website today. Alright, question number two. Nolan Bushnell was the man who co-founded Atari, the first major home console video game company. Before he got involved in the video games, he actually wanted to work for Disney, but he was not hired. After Atari, he founded a pizza restaurant chain featuring a mouse of his very own. What was it? Nolan Bushnell, who co-founded Atari and I guess gave the world the most famous version of Pong, also co-founded Chuck E. Cheese. The popular pizza place featured animatronic singing animals to go along with the games and prizes and pizza, so it was a big hit with many kids. By the way, the spokesmouse's full name is Charles Entertainment Cheese. Okay, question number three, the third and final question. In 1993, the first video game was played in space on a handheld video game console. Can you name that video game device? Bonus points for naming the game that was played. Russian cosmonaut Alexander Serebrov played the first video game in space when he took a Nintendo Game Boy to the Russian space station, where he played Tetris. When he was a young child, Jerry Lawson's father gave him something called an Irish Mail. This is a low-to-the-ground vehicle with four wheels, which a rider moves by pumping the handlebar and steers with their feet thanks to controls near the front wheels. A popular alternative to the bicycle for kids for a period of time, the design came from a similar vehicle workers along the European railroads used. Jerry's father gave it to him as a way to explore the neighborhood and the surrounding areas. It might have had something to do with shaping Jerry's lifelong tendency to always keep moving, looking, and learning. He never could have pictured a path from whizzing around on an Irish male quad cycle to changing video game history, but no one else could in the 1940s either. That technology was a long way off. Fortunately for the world, Jerry Lawson never stopped exploring. Jerry was born in New York City in 1940, just two years after a young Ralph Baer arrived in the same city. First in the borough of Brooklyn and then in Queens, Jerry lived with his parents and brother. Everyone recognized a deep curiosity in young Jerry. It came naturally. His father, Blanton, was a longshoreman on New York's wharves, one of the many people there to manually move cargo coming and going on the constant stream of ships at port. But when the physical work was done, his father loved to read and nurtured a scientific curiosity in the boy. His mother, Mannings, worked for the city of New York and became heavily involved in his education. The Lawsons were black, but Jerry attended a mostly white school. Since her sons were two of the few students of color walking the halls and filling the desks, his mother felt it was important to join the PTA, and she eventually became the PTA president. 
And in his first years at the school, he had a teacher who put a picture of George Washington Carver near his desk. When Lawson learned about the famous black scientist and inventor, who was a leader in agriculture science and education, and whose childhood home would become the first national monument to a black American, he was moved. Late in his life, Jerry said that he could still clearly see in his mind that picture near his school desk. Perhaps driven by that inspiration, young Jerry followed his interests and committed to them. He was fascinated by electronics, but rather than be satisfied with the ham radio he made, he kept going and applied for and was approved for a radio broadcast license at the age of 13. Thanks to an antenna he rigged up, he broadcasted a radio station out of his bedroom window. Who knows how many fellow New Yorkers tuned in to hear the boys' radio programming. Around the same time, he earned money by repairing radios and TVs, and even made his own walkie-talkies that he would sell to classmates. How's he going to finance a bedroom radio station? Excited by the potential of the growing field of electronics, he enrolled in college two different times, but found the educations to be too theoretical for his interests. He was more of a practical guy. He wanted to do, create, experiment. So he decided not to finish school and instead learned computers and programming, mostly on his own. Jerry Lawson learned through experience, his own curiosity, trial and error, and with the bits of communication that he could have with fellow tech nerds at the time. This drive ultimately took him to California, where his first job was working in military defense technology. But he had a hunch that computers were going to find their way into everyday homes, and that sounded like more fun than what he was doing. In the 1970s, Northern California seemed to have a magnet that attracted people obsessed with computers. Many things we now take for granted in our lives came from the minds of people in that area, and it's no coincidence that many of them knew each other when they were formulating their ideas and visions. That's how things often work, cross-pollinating ideas. There was a group called the Homebrew Computer Club, and occasionally among this group were Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, who went on to found Apple, a company that has certainly changed the world. Jerry also became a member of this group and was excited to find people as nerdy as him. It was invaluable to share ideas on electronics while learning from and challenging each other. He also saw that there was room in the computer world for fun. It didn't need to be all military defense and scientific calculations. He had recently started a new job for a company called Fairchild, who made semiconductors which are basically the little computer brains in your electronic devices. This meant he'd have access to technological things that others would not. Not far from his home, there was a pizza place with one of the first coin-operated video games called Pong. It cost 25 cents to play, and the machine was almost always full of quarters. Kids, adults, anybody dropped in a quarter and would control one of the two paddles that kept the bouncing ball on the screen bouncing back and forth. The excitement got Jerry's attention because, as he well knew, he could make something like that himself. So in his garage, he started work on Demolition Derby. The game used semiconductor technology from Fairchild and was exactly what it sounded like, a drive em and smash em up game. His kids loved it. How awesome must it have been to have one of the few video game systems in California in your own garage? 
But one day, they were disappointed to find out that it wasn't there anymore. Jerry took it to a different pizza place, where anyone with a quarter could take it for a spin and crash their way to a great afternoon. The quarters added up to some serious income. But his bosses at Fairchild didn't know about it, and that was kind of a gray area. He was using their technology, and it's easy to see how they wouldn't be happy with him building this device without their knowledge, if they found out. And they found out. Jerry, do you know why we brought you in to talk today? Is this about the Demolition Derby game? Yes, Jerry. We found out about it. So I guess it's not cool? Oh, it's not cool. It's totally awesome. Listen, we want to develop a home console video game system, and now we think you're the man to lead the team, Mr. Demolition Derby. Oh, so something like the Magnavox Odyssey? Bah, that's old news. We think what you will create will be a significant step forward. And oh boy was it. Eventually called the Channel F. The F is for fun. This game would revolutionize much about the industry. With a team of other really smart engineers, Jerry led the development of a new video game system which would connect to TVs and homes all over the country. There was an eight position joystick which allowed for lots of options of movement. This was pretty new. Jerry designed the first one for development and then his team figured out how to reproduce it easily and cheaply. Once it made it into hands around the country, it gave control like nothing before. And brought a lot of joy. Also new on the channel F, F is for fun. was the option to press pause. Yep, if you had to answer the phone, get a snack, or use the restroom, you could just press pause, walk away, and then rejoin the game when you were ready. This was a pretty cool feature. Also, unlike other systems of the time, the channel F, F is for fun. had built-in artificial intelligence. You could play the computer instead of needing a partner to play the second player. In other words, a two-person game could function as a one-person game and the channel F would control the second player. Now, while it's nice to play with friends, it wasn't a requirement anymore. So this was also huge. But the biggest leap and perhaps the most important thing that Jerry helped develop was how the channel F F is for fun. Right, F is for fun. How the channel F functioned with cartridges. Before this, when you bought a gaming system, you could play any game you want as long as that game was already loaded onto your device. There was no adding and no subtracting. The Magnavox Odyssey came with 20-something games, but other systems like the original Pong only allowed you to play that one game. Hope you really, really like Pong. In either case, there was no way to play any additional games. But with Jerry and his team of engineers and the power of semiconductors, the Channel F... F is for fun. Yes, F is for fun. The Channel F used cartridges that contained game information on them. New game? Swap out the cartridge. Tired of the ones you've got? Buy another. This changed the world and became a key feature of every video game since, at least until the internet. Unfortunately, the Channel F, F is for fun, didn't compete well with the Atari, which came out a year later. Many people believe this is because Atari had an enormous marketing budget and ran commercials around the holidays and during the Super Bowl. Whatever the case, when Jerry left Fairchild, he founded a company that created video game cartridges for 
Atari and other systems. It made sense. It was a technology he and his team practically invented. Eventually, he moved on from the video game world, as he wasn't a fan of the violence he started to see in games. He wanted most games to offer a skill or be educational in some way. For many years, his story has been largely untold, or at least undertold. Towards the end of his life in 2011, he began to see the appreciation, attention, and accolades he deserved as a pioneer in a field that saw very few black engineers. Most recently, Anthony Frazier, a creator who I've met through Kids Listen, published a three-episode audiobook on Audible that is the most comprehensive, interesting, and technologically in-depth biography I've heard on Jerry. It's called Raising the Game, the untold story of Jerry Lawson. If you like video games, I bet you'd like it. I learned a lot from it. Either way, the next time you press play on a video game, I hope you think about and send a thanks out to Ralph and Jerry, two technology heroes and social pioneers. Thank you all very much. This has been episode 73 of The Past and the Curious, all about video games. I hope you enjoyed it. I really had a good time putting this one together. And this one had been like popping around in my brain for about a year. Um, but a lot of the pieces fell into place uh, kind of last minute. That book, the audiobook by Anthony Frazier, I'm telling you, it's great. Uh, and it's not super long. It's like maybe two hours to listen to the whole thing or so, maybe a little bit more. Um, but it's it's really, really great. And you can break it up into chunks. It's in three, three editions. Um, highly recommended. The Icy Lincoln's Underpants book is almost ready. I held the proof copy in my hand this Friday. So the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, it was really, really amazing. We're making a couple last minute modifications, but it is gonna look oh so good. I can't wait to share it with you all. It's gonna be so exciting. Uh, so stay tuned for announcement on that. Patreon people, thank you so much. Um, I say that every week, but or every month, but um, I really couldn't be doing the things that I'm doing without you. So thank you so much. Uh, so to those people, Amy Rupp, we're going to add your name. Amy, thank you so much. I know you're in Colorado. I don't know if they're, if you are a grown up and there's a child I should ask, or you just love the show. I don't know. But if you want me to say thank you to someone else, then you just let me know. But otherwise, Amy Rupp, thank you. And Callum and Isaac Gilmartin in Illinois. Hello to you. Uh, I, I, your dad told me that you, um, dress up uh, in history costumes for Halloween, which is, uh, that's pretty awesome. Uh, next level commitment. I really like it. Tip of the cap to y'all. Callum and Isaac, so glad you're out there. Hean Moynihan, I know that you're, I think you're in Massachusetts. Yeah, Massachusetts. Hean, uh, I'm so glad that you're out there. I know that you have actually sent in a You Have 30 Seconds, and it, it is on one of my favorite people from history, period. I've always, always, always long before this show uh loved that person from history and i'm not going to say who it is because i'm going to use that you have 30 seconds in the near future so um you stay tuned okay um teddy iris and b in arlington virginia hello to you i'm so glad that you three are out there listening as siblings i'm sure it's you know always it's easy to agree on a show right it's the past and the curious all we all agree right so glad you all have found that and you agree um, and last but not least, Marin and Maine, I think I thanked you last month, but if I 
didn't, then thank you this month. And if I did, well, you get a double thanks. So thank you all very much. Hats off to everyone out there. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious. And um, this is, you know, there's more where this came from. It just keeps coming. I can't stop. So uh, thank you all very much. Bye-bye.